Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 307 of Forgotten Classics. More of the bat. And as with last time, I have not been listening to anything new, really. Certainly no new podcasts. So I don't really have a new podcast highlight. As before, if you check the sidebar or some of the most recent posts at the blog for the podcast, you will see tons of podcasts you can try out. And I was just checking those links recently. So most of them, if not all of them, should be working. I have been listening to, as I told you, the Master and Commander series narrated by Patrick Tull, T-U-L-L. I love. But then I ran out of Audible credits. (laughs) I get one a month and, you know, as with most things like this, I use it right away. So I actually could not get the books from the library very quickly. They have plenty of copies, but I needed the next one right then. And so I went to Half Price Books and picked up the next two. So I have been reading, oh gosh, I think it's number eight, The Ionian Mission in an actual print copy. Okay, it was hard, but I kept hearing Patrick Toll's voice in my head, and that helped. And actually, you know, those books, of course, are moving and funny and adventurous and everything else, no matter how you're getting them. So I enjoyed it a lot. I'm beginning the ninth book now. And in the meantime, I was able to get my hands, thank you, library, on a copy of... um, Patrick Toll's reading of H. Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines. I've never been that interested in that story, though we know I can like H. Ryder Haggard because I read The People of the Mist, which I highly recommend. But this is proving to be a lot funnier than I expected. I knew it would be adventurous and in Africa and exotic, but I didn't expect the flashes of humor, and I really probably should have. So if you haven't read that book or listened to it, and I don't know, but I'd be willing to bet that LibriVox has it as a reading, definitely give it a try. As well, in my pulp listening, I don't think I mentioned this last time, though maybe I did. Well, here we go again. The first book of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Martian series a Princess of Mars. I've been listening to that reading by Mark Nelson from LibriVox. Very good. Very pulpy. It's no high literature, but it is fun. And apologies for the dog, but, you know, it's Memorial Day weekend. If I'm getting the podcast out, we're doing it down and dirty right now. <laughs> so, speaking of pulpy goodness, perhaps, let's get back to our mystery the bat. And last time we discovered there's a hidden room somewhere in this house. Wouldn't that be the perfect place to hide a million dollars that you've stolen? How handy that Brooks happened to be friends in a foxhole during the war with the guy who was the architect for the house. So before he could tell where it was, he died. But 
they're listening all over the house. They're tapping. And I did love the fact that they heard other people tapping. They're like, whoa, what? We're not the only ones looking for this. And Lizzie, of course, has tapping mysteriously appearing all through the house. So she thinks that there are spirits. That made me laugh. Also, Dale got a brainstorm. And maybe this is a brainstorm in the way they used to use that term of, I think they used to say that for if you had a bad fever and you maybe were cooking your brain because she called Richard Fleming, who's Courtly Fleming's nephew, who rented them the house (laughs) and said, hey, can you come over? I could use a little help. And I thought, really? Do we know much about this guy? Is he super great? Do you really want to lean on him for help? But I guess we're going to find out what Richard Fleming's made of and how Dale handles it. That and much more is in the next two chapters. So I won't make you wait any longer. Let's dive in. The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood. Chapter 9 A Shot in the Dark A key clicked in the terrace door. A voice swore muffledly at the rain. Dale lowered her revolver slowly. It was Richard Fleming, come to meet her here instead of down by the drive. She had telephoned him on an impulse, but now as she looked at him in the light of her single candle, she wondered if this rather dissipated, rather foppish young man about town in his early thirties could possibly understand and appreciate the motives that had driven her to seek his aid. Still, it was for Jack. She clenched her teeth and resolved to go through with the plan mapped out in her mind. It might be a desperate expedient, but she had nowhere else to turn. Fleming shut the terrace door behind him and moved down from the alcove, trying to shake the rain from his coat. Did I frighten you? Oh, Mr. Fleming, yes. Dale laid her aunt's revolver down on the table. Fleming perceived her nervousness and made a gesture of apology. I'm sorry, he said. I rapped, but nobody seemed to hear me, so I used my key. You're wet through, I'm sorry, said Dale with mechanical politeness. He smiled. Oh, no. He stripped off his cap and raincoat and placed them on a chair, brushing himself off as he did so with finicky little movements of his hands. Reggie Beresford brought me over in his car, he said. He's waiting down the drive. Dale decided not to waste words in the usual commonplaces of social greeting. Mr. Fleming, I'm in dreadful trouble, she said, facing him squarely with a courageous appeal in her eyes. He made a polite movement. Oh, I say, that's too bad. She plunged on. You know the Union Bank closed today? He laughed lightly. Yes, I know it. I didn't have anything in it, or any other bank for that matter, he admitted ruefully. But I hate to see the old thing go to smash. Dale wondered which angle was best from which to present her appeal. Well... Even if you haven't lost anything in this bank failure, a lot of your friends have, surely, she went on. I'll say so, said Fleming debonairly. Beresford is sitting down the road in his Packard now, writhing with pain. Dale hesitated. 
Fleming's lightness seemed so incorrigible that for a moment she was on the verge of giving up her project entirely. Then, Waster or not, he's the only man who can help us, she told herself, and continued. Lots of awfully poor people are going to suffer, too, she said wistfully. Fleming chuckled, dismissing the poor with a wave of his hand. Oh, well, the poor are always in trouble, he said with airy heartlessness. They specialize in suffering. He extracted a monogrammed cigarette from a thin gold case. But look here, he went on, moving closer to Dale. You didn't send for me to discuss this hypothetical poor depositor, did you? Mind if I smoke? No. He lit his cigarette and puffed at it with enjoyment while Dale paused, summoning up her courage. Finally, the words came in a rush. Mr. Fleming, I'm going to say something rather brutal. Please don't mind. I'm merely desperate. You see, I happen to be engaged to the cashier, Jack Bailey. Fleming whistled. I see, and he's beat it. Dale blazed with indignation. He has not. I'm going to tell you something. He's here, now, in this house, she continued fairly, with all her defenses thrown aside. My aunt thinks he's a new gardener. He is here, Mr. Fleming, because he knows he didn't take the money, and the only person who could have done it was your uncle. Dick Fleming dropped his cigarette in a convenient ashtray and crushed it out there absently, not seeming to notice whether it scorched his fingers or not. He rose and took a turn about the room. Then he came back to Dale. That's a pretty strong indictment to bring against a dead man he said slowly, seriously. It's true, Dale insisted stubbornly, giving him glance for glance. Fleming nodded. All right. He smiled, a smile that Dale didn't like. Suppose it's true. Where do I come in? He said. You don't think I know where the money is? No, admitted Dale, but I think you might help to find it. She went swiftly over to the hall door and listened tensely for an instant. Then she came back to Fleming. If anybody comes in, you've just come to get something of yours, she said in a low voice. He nodded understandingly. She dropped her voice still lower. Do you know anything about a hidden room in this house? She asked. Dick Fleming stared at her for a moment. Then he burst into laughter. A hidden room, that's rich, he said, still laughing. Never heard of it. Now, let me get this straight. The idea is a hidden room and the money is in it. Is that it? Dale nodded a yes. The architect who built this house told Jack Bailey that he had built a hidden room in it, she persisted. For a moment, Dick Fleming stared at her as if he could not believe his ears. Then slowly his expression changed. Beneath the well-fed, debonair mask of the clubman about town, other lines appeared. Lines of avarice and calculation, wolf marks, betokening the craft and petty ruthlessness of the small soul within the gentlemanly shell. His eyes took on a shifty, uncertain stare. They no longer looked at Dale. Their gaze seemed turned inward, beholding a visioned treasure, 
a glittering pile of gold. And yet, the change in his look was not so pronounced as to give Dale pause. She felt a vague uneasiness steal over her true, but it would have taken a shrewd and long-experienced woman of the world to read the secret behind Fleming's eyes at a first glance. And Dale, for all her courage and common sense, was a young and headstrong girl. She watched him, puzzled, wondering why he made no comment on her last statement. "'Do you know where there are any blueprints of the house?' she asked at last. An odd light glittered in Fleming's eyes for a moment. Then it vanished. He held himself in check. The casual idler again. "'Blueprints!' He seemed to think it over. "'Why, there may be some. Have you looked in the old secretary in the library?' "'My uncle used to keep all sorts of papers there,' he said with apparent helpfulness. "'Why, don't you remember? You locked it when we took the house.' "'So I did.' Fleming took out his key ring, selected a key. "'Suppose you go and look,' he said. "'Don't you think I'd better stay here?' "'Oh, yes,' said Dale, blinded to everything else by the rising hope in her heart. "'Oh!' I can hardly thank you enough. And before he could even reply, she had taken the key and was hurrying toward the hall door. He watched her leave the room, a bleak smile on his face. As soon as she had closed the door behind her, his languor dropped from him. He became a hound, a ferret, questing for its prey. He ran lightly over to the bookcase by the hall door. A moment's inspection. He shook his head. Perhaps the other bookcase near the French windows? No, it wasn't there. Ah, the bookcase over the fireplace, he remembered now. He made for it, hastily swept the books from the top shelf, reached groping fingers into the space behind the second row of books. There, a dusty roll of three blueprints. He unrolled them hurriedly and tried to make out the white tracings by the light of the fire. No, better take them over to the candle on the table. He peered at them hungrily in the little spot of light thrown by the candle. The first one, no, nor the second, but the third, the bottom one. Good heavens! He took in the significance of the blurred white lines with greedy eyes, his lips opening in a silent exclamation of triumph. Then he pondered for an instant the blueprint itself. Was an awkward size, bulky, good, he had it. He carefully tore a small portion from the third blueprint and was about to stuff it in the inside pocket of his dinner jacket when Dale returning caught him before he had time to conceal his find. She took in the situation at once. "'Oh, you found it!' she said in tones of rejoicing, giving him back the key to the secretary. Then, as he still made no move to transfer the scrap of blue paper to her, "'Please let me have it, Mr. Fleming. I know that's it.' Dick Fleming's lips set in a thin line. "'Just a moment,' he said, putting the table between them with a swift movement." Once more he stole a glance at the scrap of paper in his hand by the flickering light of the candle. Then he faced Dale boldly. "'Do you suppose, if that money is actually here, that I can simply turn this over to you and let you give it to Bailey?' he said. "'Every man has his price. 
How do I know that Bailey's isn't a million dollars? Dale felt as if he had dashed cold water in her face. What do you mean to do with it, then? she said. Fleming turned the blueprint over in his hand. I don't know, he said. What is it you want me to do? But by now, Dale's vague distrust in him had grown very definite. Aren't you going to give it to me? He put her off. I'll have to think about that. He looked at the blueprint again. So, the missing cashier is in this house posing as a gardener, he said with a sneer in his tones. Dale's temper was rising. If you won't give it to me, there's a detective in this house, she said with a stamp of her foot. She made a movement as if to call Anderson. Then, remembering Jack, turned back to Fleming. Please give it to the detective and let him search, she pleaded. A detective, said Fleming, startled. What's a detective doing here? People have been trying to break in. What people? I don't know. Fleming stared out beyond Dale into the night. Then it is here, he muttered to himself. Behind his back, was it a gust of air that moved them? The double doors of the alcove swung open just a crack. Was a listener crouched behind those doors, or was it only a trick of carpentry, a gesture of chance? The mask of the club man dropped from Fleming completely. His lips drew back from his teeth in the snarl of a predatory animal that clings to its prey at the cost of life or death. Before Dale could stop him, he picked up the discarded blueprints and threw them on the fire, retaining only the precious scrap in his hand. The roll blackened and burst into flame. He watched it, smiling. I'm not going to give this to any detective, he said quietly, tapping the piece of paper in his hand. Dale's heart pounded sickeningly, but she kept her courage up. What do you mean? she said fiercely. What are you going to do? He faced her across the fireplace, his airy manner coming back to him just enough to add an additional touch of the sinister to the cold self-revelation of his words. Let us suppose just a few things, Miss Ogden, he said. Suppose my price is a million dollars. Suppose I need money very badly, and my uncle has left me a house containing that amount in cash. Suppose I choose to consider that that money is mine. Then it wouldn't be hard to suppose, would it, that I'd make a pretty sincere attempt to get away with it? Dale summoned all her fortitude. If you go out of this room with that paper, I'll scream for help, she said defiantly. Fleming made a little mock bow of courtesy. He smiled. To carry on our little game of supposing, he said easily, suppose there is a detective in this house and that if I were cornered, I should tell him where to lay his hands on Jack Bailey. Do you suppose you would scream? Dale's hands dropped, powerless at her sides. If only she hadn't told him. Too late. She was helpless. She could not call the detective without ruining Jack. And yet if Fleming escaped with the money, how could Jack ever prove his innocence? 
Fleming watched her for an instant, smiling. Then, seeing she made no move, he darted hastily toward the double doors of the alcove, flung them open, seemed about to dash up the alcove stairs. The sight of him escaping with the only existing clue to the hidden room galvanized Dale into action. She followed him, hurriedly snatching up Miss Cornelia's revolver from the table as she did so, in a last gesture of desperation. No, no, give it to me, give it to me! And she sprang after him, clutching the revolver. He waited for her on the bottom step of the stairs, the slight smile still on his face. Panting breaths in the darkness of the alcove, a short, furious scuffle. He had wrested the revolver away from her, but in doing so had unguarded the precious blueprint. She snatched at it desperately, tearing most of it away, leaving only a corner in his hand. He swore, tried to get it back. She jerked away. Then, suddenly, a bright shaft of light split the darkness of the alcove stairs like a sword. A spot of brilliance centered on Fleming's face like the glare of a flashlight focused from above by an invisible hand. For an instant, it revealed him, his features distorted with fury, about to rush down the stairs again and attack the trembling girl at their foot. A single shot rang out. For a second, the fury on Fleming's face seemed to change to a strange look of bewilderment and surprise. Then the shaft of light was extinguished as suddenly as the snuffing of a candle, and he crumpled forward to the foot of the stairs, struck, lay on his face in the darkness just inside the double doors. Dale gave a little whimpering cry of horror. Oh, no, no, no! She whispered from a dry throat, automatically stuffing her portion of the precious scrap of blueprint into the bosom of her dress. She stood frozen, not daring to move, not daring even to reach down with her hand and touch the body of Fleming to see if he was dead or alive. A murmur of excited voices sounded from the hall. The door flew open. Feet stumbled through the darkness. The noise came from this room. That was Anderson's voice. Holy Virgin! That must be Lizzie. Even as Dale turned to face the assembled household, the house lights, extinguished since the storm, came on in full brilliance, revealing her to them standing beside Fleming's body with Miss Cornelia's revolver between them. She shuddered, seeing Fleming's arm flung out awkwardly by his side. No living man could lie in such a posture. I didn't do it. I didn't do it, she stammered after a tense silence that followed the sudden reillumining of the lights. Her eyes wandered from figure to figure idly, noting unimportant details. Billy was still in his white coat, and his face, impassive as ever, showed not the slightest surprise. Brooks and Anderson were likewise completely dressed, but Miss Cornelia had evidently begun to retire for the night when she had heard the shot. Her transformation was askew, and she wore a dressing gown. As for Lizzie, that worthy shivered in a gaudy wrapper adorned with incredible orange flowers, with her hair done up in curlers. Dale saw it all, and was never after to forget one single detail of it. The detective was beside her now, examining Fleming's body with professional thoroughness. At last he rose. "'He's dead,' he said quietly. A shiver ran through the watching group. Dale felt a stifling hand constrict about her heart. 
There was a pause. Anderson picked up the revolver beside Fleming's body and examined it swiftly, careful not to confuse his own fingerprints with any that might already be on the polished steel. Then he looked at Dale. Who is he? he said bluntly. Dale fought hysteria for some seconds before she could speak. Richard! Fleming! Somebody shot him! she managed to whisper at last. Anderson took a step toward her. What do you mean by somebody? he said. The world to Dale turned into a crowd of threatening, accusing eyes, a multitude of shadowy voices shouting, Guilty! Guilty! Prove that you're innocent! You can't. I don't know, she said wildly. Somebody on the staircase. Did you see anybody? Anderson's voice was as passionless and cold as a bar of steel. No, but there was a light from somewhere, like a pocket flash. She could not go on. She saw Fleming's face before her, furious at first, then changing to that strange look of bewildered surprise. She put her hands over her eyes to shut the vision out. Lizzie made a welcome interruption. I told you I saw a man go up that staircase, she wailed, jabbing her forefinger in the direction of the above stairs. Miss Cornelia, now recovered from the first shock of the discovery, supported her gallantly. That's the only explanation, Mr. Anderson, she said decidedly. The detective looked at the stairs, at the terrace door. His eyes made a circuit of the room and came back to Fleming's body. I've been all over the house, he said. There's nobody there. A pause followed. Dale found herself helplessly looking toward her lover for comfort, comfort he could not give without revealing his own secret. Eerily, through the tense silence, a sudden tinkling sounded, the sharp, persistent ringing of a telephone bell. Miss Cornelia rose to answer it automatically. The house phone, she said. Then she stopped. But we're all here. They looked at each other aghast. It was true. And yet, somehow, somewhere, one of the other phones on the circuit was calling the living room. Miss Cornelia summoned every ounce of inherited Van Gorder pride she possessed and went to the phone. She took off the receiver. The ringing stopped. Hello? Hello? she said while the others stood rigid, listening. Then she gasped. An expression of wondering horror came over her face. Chapter 10 the phone call from nowhere. Somebody groaning, gasped Miss Cornelia. It's horrible. The detective stepped up and took the receiver from her. He listened anxiously for a moment. I don't hear anything, he said. I heard it. I couldn't imagine such a dreadful sound. I tell you, somebody in this house is in terrible distress. Where does this phone connect? queried Anderson practically. Miss Cornelia made a hopeless little gesture. Practically every room in this house. The detective put the receiver to his ear again. Just what did you hear? He said stolidly. Miss Cornelia's voice shook. Dreadful groans and what seemed to be an inarticulate effort to speak. 
Lizzie drew her gaudy wrapper closer about her shuddering form. I'd go somewhere, she wailed in the voice of a lost soul. If only I had somewhere to go. Miss Cornelia quelled her with a glare and turned back to the detective. Won't you send these men to investigate or go yourself? She said, indicating Brooks and Billy. The detective thought swiftly. My place is here, he said. You two men. Brooks and Billy moved forward to take his orders. Take another look through the house. Don't leave the building. I'll want you pretty soon. Brooks, or Jack Bailey, as we may as well call him through the remainder of this narrative, started to obey. Then his eye fell on Miss Cornelia's revolver, which Anderson had taken from beside Fleming's body and still held clasped in his hand. If you'll give me that revolver, he began in an offhand tone, hoping Anderson would not see through his little ruse. Once wiped clean of fingerprints, the revolver would not be such telling evidence against Dale Ogden. But Anderson was not to be caught napping. That revolver will stay where it is he said with a grim smile. Jack Bailey knew better than to try and argue the point. He followed Billy reluctantly out of the door, giving Dale a surreptitious glance of encouragement and faith as he did so. The Japanese and he mounted to the second floor as stealthily as possible, prying into dark corners and searching unused rooms for any clue that might betray the source of the startling phone call from nowhere. But Bailey's heart was not in the search. His mind kept going back to the figure of Dale, nervous, shaken, undergoing the terrors of the third degree at Anderson's hands. She couldn't have shot Fleming, of course, and yet, unless he and Billy found something to substantiate her story of how the killing had happened, it was her own unsupported word against a damning mass of circumstantial evidence he plunged with renewed vigor into his quest. Back in the living room, as he had feared, Anderson was subjecting Dale to a merciless interrogation. Now I want the real story, he began with calculated brutality. You lied before. That's no tone to use. You'll only terrify her, cried Miss Cornelia indignantly. The detective paid no attention. His face had hardened. He seemed every inch the remorseless sleuth-hound of the law. He turned on Miss Cornelia for a moment. "'Where were you when this happened?' he said. "'Upstairs in my room.' Miss Cornelia's tones were icy. "'And you?' badgeringly to Lizzie. "'In my room,' said the latter pertly. "'Brushing Miss Cornelia's hair.' Anderson broke open the revolver and gave a swift glance at the bullet chambers. One shot has been fired from this revolver. Miss Cornelia sprang to her niece's defense. I fired it myself this afternoon, she said. The detective regarded her with grudging admiration. You're a quick thinker, he said with obvious unbelief in his voice. He put the revolver down on the table. Miss Cornelia followed up her advantage. I demand that you get the coroner here, she said. Dr. Wells is the coroner, offered Lizzie eagerly. Anderson brushed their suggestions aside. I'm going to ask you some questions, he said menacingly to Dale. But Miss Cornelia stuck to her guns. Dale was not going to be bullied into any sort of confession, true or false, if she could help it. 
and from the way that the girl's eyes returned with fascinated horror to the ghastly heap on the floor that had been Fleming, she knew that Dale was on the edge of violent hysteria. "'Do you mind covering that body first? she asked crisply. The detective eyed her for a moment in a rather ugly fashion, then grunted ungraciously, and taking Fleming's raincoat from the chair, threw it over the body. Dale's eyes telegraphed her aunt a silent message of gratitude. "'Now, shall I telephone for the coroner?' persisted Miss Cornelia. The detective obviously resented her interference with his methods, but he could not well refuse such a customary request. "'I'll do it,' he said with a snort, going over to the city telephone. "'What's his number?' "'He's not at his office. He's at the Johnsons,' murmured Dale." Miss Cornelia took the telephone from Anderson's hands. "'I'll get the Johnsons, Mr. Anderson,' she said firmly. The detective seemed about to rebuke her. Then his manner recovered some of its former suavity. He relinquished the telephone and turned back toward his prey. "'Now, what was Fleming doing here?' he asked Dale in a gentler voice. "'Should she tell him the truth?' "'No,' Jack Bailey's safety was too inextricably bound up with the whole sinister business. She must lie, and lie again, while there was any chance of a lie's being believed. "'I don't know,' she said weakly, trying to avoid the detective's eyes. Anderson took thought. "'Well, I'll ask that question another way,' he said. "'How did he get into the house?' Dale brightened. "'No need for a lie here.' He had a key. Key to what door? That door over there. Dale indicated the terrace door of the alcove. The detective was about to ask another question. Then he paused. Miss Cornelia was talking on the telephone. Hello. Is that Mr. Johnson's residence? Is Dr. Wells there? No. Her expression was puzzled. Oh, all right. Thank you. Good night. Meanwhile, Anderson had been listening but thinking as well. Dale saw his sharp glance travel over to the fireplace, rest for a moment with an air of discovery on the fragments of the roll of blueprints that remained unburned among the ashes, return. She shut her eyes for a moment, trying tensely to summon every atom of shrewdness she possessed to aid her. He was hammering at her with questions again. When did you take that revolver out of the table drawer? When I heard him outside on the terrace, said Dale promptly and truthfully. I was frightened. Lizzie tiptoed over to Miss Cornelia. You wanted a detective, she said in an ironic whisper. I hope you're happy now you've got one. Miss Cornelia gave her a look that sent her scuttling back to her former post by the door. But nevertheless, internally, she felt thoroughly in accord with Lizzie. Again, Anderson's questions pounded at the rigid Dale, striving to pierce her armor of mingled truth and falsehood. When Fleming came in, what did he say to you? Just something about the weather, said Dale weakly. The whole scene was still too horribly vivid before her eyes for her to furnish a more convincing alibi. You didn't have any quarrel with him? Dale hesitated. He just came in that door, said something about the weather, and was shot from that staircase. Is that it? said the detective in tones of utter incredulity. 
Dale hesitated again. Thus baldly put, her story seemed too flimsy for words. She could not even blame Anderson for disbelieving it. And yet, what other story could she tell that would not bring ruin on Jack? Her face whitened. She put her hand on the back of a chair for support. Yes, that's it, she said at last, and swayed where she stood. Again, Miss Cornelia tried to come to the rescue. Are all these questions necessary? she queried sharply. You can't for a moment believe that Miss Ogden shot that man. But by now, though she did not show it, she too began to realize the strength of the appalling net of circumstances that drew with each minute tighter around the unhappy girl. Dale gratefully seized the momentary respite and sank into a chair. The detective looked at her. I think she knows more than she's telling. She's concealing something he said with deadly intentness. The nephew of the president of the Union Bank shot in his own house the day the bank has failed. That's queer enough. Now he turned back to Miss Cornelia. But when the only person present at his murder is the girl who's engaged to the guilty cashier, he continued, watching Miss Cornelia's face as the full force of his words sank into her mind. I want to know more about it. He stopped. His right hand moved idly over the edge of the table, halted beside an ashtray, closed upon something. Miss Cornelia rose. Is that true, Dale? She said sorrowfully. Dale nodded. Yes. She could not trust herself to explain at greater length. Then Miss Cornelia made one of the most magnificent gestures of her life. Well... Even if it is, what has that got to do with it? She said, turning upon Anderson fiercely, all her protective instinct for those whom she loved aroused. Anderson seemed somewhat impressed by the fierceness of her query. When he went on, it was with less harshness in his manner. I'm not accusing this girl, he said more gently, but behind every crime there is a motive. When we've found the motive for this crime, we'll have found the criminal. Unobserved, Dale's hand instinctively went to her bosom. There it lay, the motive, the precious fragment of blueprint which she had torn from Fleming's grasp, but an instant before he was shot down. Once Anderson found it in her possession, the case was closed, the evidence against her overwhelming. She could not destroy it. It was the only clue to the hidden room and the truth that might clear Jack Bailey, but somehow she must hide it, get it out of her hands before Anderson's third-degree methods broke her down, or he insisted upon a search of her person. Her eyes roved wildly about the room, looking for a hiding place. The rain of Anderson's questions began anew. "'What papers did Fleming burn in that grate?' he asked abruptly, turning back to Dale. "'Papers?' she faltered. "'Papers. The ashes are still there.' Miss Cornelia made an unavailing interruption. Miss Ogden has said he didn't come into this room. The detective smiled. I hold in my hand proof that he was in this room for some time, he said coldly, displaying the half-burned cigarette he had taken from the ashtray a moment before. His cigarette, with his monogram on it. He put the fragment of tobacco and paper carefully away in an envelope and marched over to the fireplace. There he rummaged among the ashes for a moment like a dog uncovering a bone. 
He returned to the center of the room with a fragment of blackened blue paper fluttering between his fingers. A fragment of what is technically known as a blueprint, he announced. What were you and Richard Fleming doing with a blueprint? His eyes bored into Dale's. Dale hesitated, shut her lips. Now think it over, he warned. The truth will come out sooner or later. Better be frank now. If only he knew how I wanted to be, he wouldn't be so cruel, thought Dale wearily. But I can't, I can't. Then her heart gave a throb of relief. Jack had come back into the room. Jack and Billy. Jack would protect her. But even as she thought of this, her heart sank again. Protect her indeed. Poor Jack. He would find it hard enough to protect himself if once this terrible man with the cold smile and steely eyes started questioning him. She looked up anxiously. Bailey made his report breathlessly. Nothing in the house, sir. Billy's impassive lips confirmed him. We go all over house. Nobody. Nobody? Nobody in the house? And yet the mysterious ringing of the phone... The groans Miss Cornelia had heard. Were old wives' tales and witches' fables true, after all? Did a power, merciless, evil, exist outside the barriers of flesh, blasting that trembling flesh with a cold breath from beyond the portals of the grave? There seemed to be no other explanation. "'You men stay here,' said the detective. "'I want to ask you some questions.' He doggedly returned to his third degreeing of Dale. Now what about this blueprint? He queried sharply. Dale stiffened in her chair. Her lies had failed. Now she would tell a portion of the truth, as much of it as she could without menacing Jack. I'll tell you just what happened, she began. I sent for Richard Fleming, and when he came, I asked him if he knew where there were any blueprints of the house. The detective pounced eagerly upon her admission. Why did you want blueprints? He thundered. Because, Dale took a long breath. I believe old Mr. Fleming took the money himself from the Union Bank and hid it here. Where did you get that idea? Dale's jaw set. I won't tell you. What had the blueprints to do with it? She could think of no plausible explanation but the true one. Because I'd heard there was a hidden room in the house. The detective leaned forward intently. Did you locate that room? Dale hesitated. No. Then why did you burn the blueprints? Dale's nerve was crumbling, breaking under the repeated monotonous impact of his questions. He burned them, she cried wildly. I don't know why. The detective paused an instant, then returned to a previous query. Then you didn't locate this hidden room. Dale's lips formed a pale, no. Did he? went on Anderson inexorably. Dale stared at him dully. The breaking point had come. Another question. Another. And she would no longer be able to control herself. She would sob out the truth hysterically. That Brooks, the gardener, was Jack Bailey, the missing cashier. That the scrap of blueprint hidden in the bosom of her dress might unravel the secret of the hidden room. That... 
but just as she felt herself sucked of strength, beginning to slide toward a black tingling pit of merciful oblivion, Miss Cornelia provided a diversion. What's that? she said in a startled voice. The detective turned away from his quarry for an instant. What's what? I heard something, averred Miss Cornelia, staring through the French windows. All eyes followed the direction of her stare. There was an instant of silence. Then, suddenly, traveling swiftly from right to left across the shades of the French windows, there appeared a glowing circle of brilliant white light. Inside the circle was a black, distorted shadow, a shadow like the shadow of a gigantic black bat. It was there. Then a second later, it was gone. Oh my God, wailed Lizzie from her corner. It's the bat. That's his sign. Jack Bailey made a dash for the terrace door, but Miss Cornelia halted him peremptorily. Wait, Brooks. She turned to the detective. Mr. Anderson, you are familiar with the sign of the bat. Did that look like it? The detective seemed both puzzled and disturbed. Well, it looked like the shadow of a bat, I'll say that for it, he said finally. On the heels of his words, the front doorbell began to ring, all turned in the direction of the hall. I'll answer that, said Jack Bailey eagerly. Miss Cornelia gave him the key to the front door. Don't admit anyone until you know who it is, she said. Bailey nodded and disappeared into the hall. The others waited tensely. Miss Cornelia's hand crept toward the revolver lying on the table where Anderson had put it down. There was the click of an opening door, the noise of a little scuffle, then men's voices raised in an angry dispute. "'What do I know about a flashlight?' cried an irritated voice. "'I haven't a pocket flash. Take your hands off me!' Bailey's voice answered the other one, grim, threatening. The scuffle resumed." Then Dr. Wells burst suddenly into the room, closely followed by Bailey. The doctor's tie was askew. He looked ruffled and enraged. Bailey followed him vigilantly, seeming not quite sure whether to allow him to enter or not. "'My dear Miss Van Gorder,' began the doctor in tones of high dudgeon, "'won't you instruct your servants that even if I do make a late call, I am not to be received with violence? "'I asked you if you had a pocket flash about you.' "'answered Bailey indignantly. "'If you call a question like that violence!' "'He seemed about to restrain the doctor by physical force. "'Miss Cornelia quelled the teapot tempest. "'It's all right, Brooks,' she said, "'taking the front door key from his hand "'and putting it back on the table. "'She turned to Dr. Wells. "'You see, Dr. Wells,' she explained, "'just a moment before you rang the doorbell, "'a circle of white light was thrown on these window shades.' The doctor laughed with a certain relief. Why, that was probably the searchlight from my car, he said. I noticed as I drove up that it fell directly on the window. His explanation seemed to satisfy all present but Lizzie. She regarded him with a deep suspicion. He may be a lawyer, a merchant, a doctor, she chanted ominously to herself. Miss Cornelia, too, was not entirely at ease. In the center of this ring of light, she proceeded, her eyes on the doctor's calm countenance, was an almost perfect silhouette of a bat. A bat? The doctor seemed at sea. 
<laughs> I see. The symbol of the criminal of that name. He laughed again. I think I can explain what you saw. Quite often my headlights collect insects at night, and a large moth spread on the glass would give precisely the effect you speak of. Just to satisfy you, I'll go out and take a look. He turned to do so. Then he caught sight of the raincoat-covered huddle on the floor. Why? He said in a voice that mingled astonishment with horror. He paused. His glance slowly traversed the circle of silent faces.